This is Bedside, a podcast series on a mission to debunk sex. I'm your host, Tatiana, and each week we'll uncover stories, ideas, routines, and expert information to help guide you on your ever-evolving journey of good sex. We believe that through democratizing sexual wellness, we can shift cultural taboos and make way for authentic and limitless access to pleasure, joy, and connection to the body. understand the porn that you use and and how you use it so what this does is it helps us figure out what we want to get from porn what kind of porn we'd like to support and how we'd like porn to impact us when we're away from it so what it does is it helps us become more mindful more intentional about how we engage with porn Today, I'm in conversation with Avril Louise Clark, a clinical sexologist and project manager for Erica Lust's nonprofit project, The Porn Conversation. On the podcast today, we were talking all about pornography, the deep prevalence of it, the secrecy, the harm, benefits, ethics, and important cultural indications. Born and raised in Miami, Avril has always had a passion for women's issues, politics, and the access and availability of comprehensive sex education. As we cover the pornographic landscape, Avril shares just the sheer scale of the adult entertainment industry and how we can become porn literate, engaging with porn in a healthy and pleasurable way, and how we can use it as a tool to open up the conversation in hopes of bettering our sexual expression, communication, and exploration. Avril is dedicated to increasing the availability of sex-positive educational tools for parents and educators to provide younger generations comprehensive sex education at home and in school. And she believes one of the best ways to do so is through the topic of pornography. I can't wait for you to listen to this episode. It's filled with really great personal stories, but better yet, wonderful insight on just what the landscape looks like today. Please welcome to the podcast, Avril Louise Clark. Avril, I'm so excited to have you on the show today. First and foremost, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Tatiana. I'm super excited to be here. I would really like for you to tell us just a little bit about who you are and kind of what led you to the work that you do today, because I know that not everybody's first inclination is to jump into the world of sex education. So I'd really love to kind of know about your story and what led you to living in Barcelona today. Right, exactly. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a clinical sexologist. So what led me to this work today was basically my own experience of not receiving sex education as a young girl and teen growing up in Miami, Florida, neither at school nor at home. So my career choice, uh, although is like not the traditional choice, right, or 
what even is traditional is is based on that based on me kind of going through this process of unlearning all the shame the guilt that came through you know either my culture as an experience of a young teen growing up in such an over sexualized city uh with a total lack of sexual health care practices and education and then just kind of like choosing to to regain my power in that way right to learn it and to be able to teach it is just a joy. So what that's led me to is being able to give sex therapy to couples and individuals, which is really exciting. And we tackle things like, you know, sexual dysfunction or issues of desire. And also to be able to create sex ed curricula, um, to be able to teach teens and kids all the great things that I wish I knew about consent and boundaries and what is a healthy relationship and all those good things. You mentioned your messaging around sex and sexuality growing up. And I kind of would love to dig a little bit deeper there. What, what did that look like in school and at home? At home, completely non-existent. So my parents are actually um, Irish Catholic immigrants, right? They came to America in the 1980s. I came around in 1992. So they were still pretty, like, fresh to the system, right? And so that being said, there's no support in the schools uh, as far as, you know, talking about sex and sexual health. I received two days of what they called human growth and development courses when I was in fifth grade, where they separated the boys from the girls. And we talked about period and menstrual products. And then they handed us this bag at the end of the two days. And it was like filled with like a little mini deodorant pamphlets about pads. And I think a pad. (laughs) So that was about it. As far as sex education, I don't even know if you would call it sex education because there was nothing about sex. Wait, you, you literally just triggered a memory of mine. I think I got that same exact goodie bag. Like I've never thought about that, but I 100% got the same bag. (laughs) Right. Who was, I think always, I always think back, I'm like, I think it was always pad. I always remember it being always pad. I think they sponsored some really poor sex education program (laughs) in the American public school system. And then, yeah, going back to home, it was like, you know, I I needed to get birth control when I was around 16 years old because I had ovarian cysts, right? I was getting really painful periods. So like, you know, birth control Mm. is not for people who don't want to get pregnant. I was unable to really like ask my mom for it or like I had to figure out how to pay for it myself. Once my mom found out about it, like I can only call it like my prescription, you know? So Mm. I was never able to be open. I wasn't allowed to date. All these things that kind of like led to a whole weird dynamic of like, you know, unsafe sex practices, relationships issues if you want to call it that you know and just like not really the best combination for a girl growing up in in such a sexy city (laughs) yeah I mean and I feel like this is such a great segue into the conversation that we're having today which is really all about porn and pornography and just like the adult entertainment industry and I 
wanted to chat with you about this today because while I felt like a lot of the topics that we do have around certain things like sex toys and periods are kind of coming to the forefront in cultural conversation, there are still things that are pretty left in the dark and I think porn is really one of those conversations. So I truly cannot wait to just like dedicate this entire podcast interview just to the ins and outs of that because you're so well versed in it and you work with one of the top ethical porn directors in the world which we'll get into but I think before we get into kind of the landscape of it I thought it would be kind of fun to talk about our first personal experiences with pornography so if you're comfortable to share your story and of course I I will follow with mine because I would love to share mine as well. I want to hear about how you first just learned about porn or witnessed it. Tell me your story. Oh my goodness. I love this question because no one's ever asked me this before. (laughs) (laughs) This is so good. Um, Okay, so my first personal experience with porn was when I went over my first crush, first kisses house when I was in ninth grade, so the first year of high school, and his parents were out, right? So he had this like big screen TV and I think, you know, had this special cable or or some sort of system where you're able to access porn on a TV, which I obviously didn't have in my house. And we were, like, really kind of young and didn't really know how to, like, hook up, right? So I think he decided to uh, put on some pornography to get us in the mood, I guess, or something. And I was just, like, realizing in that moment, like, wow, this is my first time seeing porn. And I think I was just so distracted by it all because I was like, okay, and, and I think that was such an interesting way to begin my, like, hooking up experience with boys because from that point on, I just saw these, like, repetitive behaviors in sex and things that were, like, obviously so mimicked from, like, online free porn. So it was, it was like that. That's, that was my first experience. Oh, my gosh. We... We share a kind of similar story. So I'll uh, to kind of go into to my own personal history with porn. So I remember back in the day, the early 90s, my brother and I were sitting at our family desktop computer. Like I'm talking about like the hard drive was underneath the desk, like and you turned on your computer like via the hard drive and then it, you know, (laughs) turned on the massive computer and so we were just really young and we were messing around and we were like let's go to poop.com and so this was like I mean I still think the internet is the wild west but like when we're talking about the early 90s like this is the true wild west and so we go to poop.com we think we're being really funny and silly my dad walks in the room at that moment and then we're all looking at a porn website and then that was the day that you know my dad installed ad blockers and we like We just all have this like hysterical memory of that together. But then I think like later on 
I remember just like pornography being present like really subtly around me like when you know this is like pre-Netflix days but like we'd go to the video store and there'd be kind of like the x-rated section closed off section of the video store and I remember as a kid like kind of like always being so curious about what was behind the curtain and of course it was like rows and rows of pornography but I was like so intrigued that about what it was like I wanted to know I wanted to see and then kind of like going to one of my first experiences with pornography I remember being really curious about like how people had sex because my sex ed was not it did not involve like anything other than 1980s birthing videos and like a banana a condom on a banana and so I was like how does this work so I remember looking up And this was kind of like the Tumblr days. And I was like looking up on Tumblr, like, you know, GIF porn would come up and I'd be like, oh, this is how sex works. This is like how it actually comes together. And we share a similar story where one of my first sexual experiences involved the boy that I had been kissing also pulling up porn to kind of like get us in the mood. And this is the first time I've ever shared that. And to hear you also sharing your first porn experience and having the same exact thing, I want to know how many listeners are like, oh my God, this must be <laughs> like, like a common thing. So yeah, th- those are my experiences with it. Yeah. On the one hand, it's like bravo for them thinking outside the box to, you know, bring some sort of extra material into, you know, igniting some desire in the moment. But also like, what? Like, I can't believe that was like, that was happening. (laughs) I know. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing. No, Um, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So I was reading that about one third of all internet traffic is porn. And this just stood out to me because I was like, oh my goodness, that is so much internet traffic. And like globally, we are we are like so obsessed with pornography. And like, I just want to talk about this. Like, can you tell us a little bit more about this? Oh, definitely. So the two pornography giants, right, of the world, they outrank Amazon, Netflix, and Reddit in the amount of, like, viewers that they get or users. And this just, like, highlights that sheer scale of, you know, the size of the modern free porn to pornography industry, right? So it's massive, right? Um, to to give you more of an idea, in one year, there were 42 billion visits to Pornhub, 6 million videos uploaded. So that's about like 150 million visitors per day. And um, Pornhub actually, you know, they have their like analytics that they come out with every year that kind of like tells you like the top searches, the top users, where they're coming from, right? And Pornhub actually pointed out that the amount of visits they get today Uh, per day is equivalent of the populations of Canada, Australia, Poland, and the Netherlands. Oh my goodness. It's huge. It's massive. It's a giant for sure. (laughs) That is, that is mind boggling. I mean, to think of that mass of people, to even like throw the Amazon fact into the equation is just, wow. I mean, 
and I, I, I don't, I don't really blame us. I mean, I think overall, it's something we're all curious about, and the internet has answers. So I see the reason why we go to it. I really want to dive into the ethics right now. And I think a really great place to start kind of is most obviously around the idea of secrecy around pornography. And I'd really just love for you to fill us in about the landscape because like I said before, it really just feels like the Wild West. And I'd love to kind of get a better understanding just about how porn sites are run and kind of even the concerns behind them, like things like trafficking and the inequities behind it. So if you could fill us in a little bit, that would be amazing. Yeah, of course. So, so like I said before, it's, it's a giant, right? So when we are trying to look at how these sites are run, it's important to start at the top. So there's a, a private pornography conglomerate, which is called MindGeek, and they have more than 100 different websites, production companies, and brands. And this also includes Pornhub, right? So this is a huge, huge, huge corporation that's profiting, from pornography. When we think about online free porn uh, and the content that we see on there, we have to see it as if, you know, they're trying to make as much money as possible. So it's an industry that publishes a mass amount of content with absolutely no regulatory body or government holding them accountable. Mm. I think people have tried. And I do think with like the recent article of the New York Times, you know, the children of Pornhub, we're starting to see these people having to come out and become somewhat accountable or not even just accountable yet, but at least like unveiling themselves. Who are these people that are behind MindGeek, for example, you know? Yep. So the way these sites work is like, you know, let's take Pornhub, right? The big guys, for example. Uh, It's like YouTube. So it allows members of the public to post their own videos. And the great majority of these videos, you know, are probably involve consenting adults, right? But there are many that have depicted child abuse, non-consensual violence, um, and, and sex. And because it's impossible to be sure whether or not someone is of age in videos, um, Pornhub, nor any one else has really a clear idea of how much content is illegal. That being said, that's no excuse for, for this content being, you know, readily available on these free online porn tube sites. Um, I think that it's, it's dangerous waters. And, you know, we see things like um, image-based sexual abuse, which is, you know, more popularly known as revenge porn Mm. being put up online. They do a lot of things like upskirting. Um, You know, these are just like innocent people who, who don't want to be exposed online. And unlike YouTube, Pornhub actually allows videos to be downloaded directly from its website. So even if a video is removed at the request of authorities, let's say, it may already be too late. It can be copied, it can be shared with others, uploaded again and again and again, screenshotted, you know what. So it's, you know, it's it's absolutely invested with things that are highly unethical and it monetizes off these this content. So, I mean, it, it goes to show that 
these companies are are huge. And as we know, it's not easy to take down corporations. Um, but what we can do is we can be more mindful of what we are consuming as users. Because like you said before, we don't blame people, right? It's like free, it's easily accessible. So it's more about like, how can we change the conversation about porn and kind of open it up to a way that we're we're kind of armed with more information and knowledge so we can be more literate as far as like what we are consuming. I love that. And I kind of can't wait to get into that a little bit more because I think there's so much to be said about how we can really actually healthily integrate pornography and have a healthy relationship with that. But I guess before we kind of go into those topics, I'm curious, would porn be as dangerous, quote unquote dangerous, if it wasn't basically the dark market that it kind of is, where it does involve the free internet and trafficking and minors and revenge porn? Like, like in what world would it be not so dangerous? It's a good question. So I think that... Um to put it simply, I think most definitely it is possible. Um, that's why the growth of ethical pornography is so essential in this movement, right? Because ethical pornography has nothing to hide. You know, transparency is one of the values ethical pornographers uphold. So unlike the free online tube sites of today, you can see the name of every person involved in creating a film. Everything is transparent right from the performers to the editors to everyone who is on set um, creating this production um so as far as like making porn less dangerous and and i think it comes with creating porn that kind of fits that definition you know of ethical pornography to kind of create these conversations where we make you know, this type of online free porn or this type of these websites less popular if if possible. And and we hope so, you know, also it's quite political. It it comes down to how can we change laws? How can Mm -hmm. we get politicians involved? I think, you know, one of the big reasons why they're trying to, there's a campaign that's trying to rename um, the word revenge porn by using the term um, image-based sexual abuse is because when lawmakers and politicians see the word porn, they might not want to even touch this type of topic Mm. because it's so, like you said, like dirty, you know, and, um, and there's so much shame involved in it. But the reality is, is that it's harming a lot of individuals. And we need to also keep in mind that there's a lot of amazing sex workers out there that are doing a great job in, in creating content um, that exists behind a paywall that gives people that same discovery or, or outlet or whatever they're looking to use porn for. That makes so much sense. And I mean, 
I guess also kind of going into what you mentioned a moment ago when policymakers, if there's a chance that you do use the word pornography in a case that they might back away from it, I think it does come down to the idea of shame and of it just being too complicated of a subject to kind of get into. And I mean, it all really roots down to me down to culture and and I really think of some cultures what comes to mind is honestly some Middle Eastern cultures where women can't even really drive cars and it really all goes back to sex and power for me and I think I'm I'm really curious as someone who's living in Barcelona abroad right now but you're from the U.S. I want to know if you've noticed any difference kind of in the way that these two cultures approach the sex conversation and just the shame or the normal of things behind porn like is there a difference or is there not really any difference at all yeah so as you know as an American I think that we definitely grew up in in a a culture of of shame where um, when it involves our sex and sexuality and so that was was quite a, a a strange culture to kind of like grow up in. I think the way I like to say it is that as, you know, a young woman entering my college years and things like that, I was being sexualized from a very, very young age. And so there's a difference between the sexualization of young women and teens to having sexual agency, right? Having a choice of how I want to present myself as a sexual being, because we are all essentially sexual beings. And so I feel like culture had such a massive effect on the way that I I saw myself as a sexual being and, and how I celebrated that in my relationships because, you know, the patriarchy is alive and well, right? So I felt like I was forming myself in the male gaze, you know, in, in someone that was trying to impress the men around me, which is kind of what we see in online porn today, right? One hundred percent. It's like, how does a man, a man, like to see a woman? You know, and it's just like very, very much like alive and well there. As far as like how my experience around how people talk about sex and normalization of things like porn here in Barcelona, I've been very fortunate to to be working on a team of, of amazing. Um, sex positive people uh and so I have noticed that I think I've just been surrounding myself with people that I'm able to have these conversations with and and we're working towards that goal every day and it just feels it feels great the one thing that did stand out to me and the differences culturally is the sexualization of the female body is much heavier in America uh, than it would be here in Spain. For example, a female tanning topless on the beach in Miami would be constantly approached by men trying to talk to her, trying to hit her up. And then in Spain, women tan topless, which you would think is not such a big deal. But it was amazing for me to see, you know, mothers topless at the beach with their husbands and moms just like breastfeeding in And, you know, it it kind of really messed with my head for a bit to think like, wow, I can't believe I grew up in a culture where like the female body was sexualized to the point that it couldn't 
like females couldn't feel comfortable doing these really beautiful natural things uh so that was something i had to unlearn almost uh and now it's like wonderful and 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 freeing Did you know that a simple finger prick can unlock tons of insight into your reproductive health? I'm talking egg count, menopause timing, if your hormone levels indicate conditions like thyroid disorders or PCOS, all things that are good to know whether or not kids are in your future. That's why Modern Fertility was created. It's the easy and affordable way to test your fertility hormones at home with a simple finger prick. Mail it in with a prepaid label and you'll get your personalized results within 10 days. You'll get insight into how many eggs you have, hormone levels, and other important fertility factors. The results go deep into what every hormone means and you can also talk one-on-one with a fertility nurse to review your results and options for next steps. Right now, Modern Fertility is offering our listeners $10 off the test when you go to modernfertility.com bedside. That means your test will cost $139 instead of the hundreds or thousands it costs at a doctor's office. Get $10 off your fertility test when you go to modernfertility.com bedside. That's modernfertility.com bedside. Between the way that we handle the way that bodies just show up the way that they like naturally develop the way that they evolve from being young women to breastfeeding to how that's presented or how that's gazed at and I mean I'm so happy that you really brought up the male gaze here because it is a central point to just the way that I think we've operated around sex like it has has everything to do with the male gaze um it has to do with pleasing the onlooker and and making sure that you know it complies to a certain set of rules and a certain set of appearance and there is such a difference when you when you come to Europe it's so fascinating I mean it's really 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 interesting and it was shocking to me as someone who thought like my culture in America didn't affect me so much to, mm-hmm. to really have to sit with that feeling of like, Hmm, why am I somewhat uncomfortable here? What is uncomfortable about, you know, seeing a woman just, you you know, like tanning or just being a mother or just enjoying themselves nude and I realized it was it was America. In those moments, I always look at my partner who's who's Spanish, and I'm like, America's got me fucked up. <laughs> like, I'm like, oh. <laughs> I love that. I mean, and I, and I think also too, the male gaze holds a really important role in the performance and the performative nature behind pornography. And so I'm curious, and I think this is a great point to kind of transition a bit into into the work that you do around ethical porn as well. But I'm curious, like, what is the balance between reality and performance when it comes to porn? Because I think I see it in like this really extreme way, the one that has been so kind of misogynistic, that's been about the patriarchy, that's been about the male gaze and has been really harmful to the way that we kind of see and learn about sex. But then I also see performance being 
a really important part of pornography as well because I don't want to shame the art of creating an experience the kink and the turn-on behind performative behavior of sex whether that be pornography whether that be uh you know role play within fantasy so I would love to unpack that a bit with you yeah that's a really good point so Definitely, I I think the talking about the performance aspect behind pornography is really important, right? Because this is the point where we can kind of talk about, you know, the fiction of porn versus the reality of porn, which is essential to, to porn literacy. So I'll start by saying some of the ethical porn out there, such as Erica Lust, um, aims to create porn with beautiful images, locations, and captivating storylines. So what that does is it kind of immerses the viewer into into a more sensual and passionate scene. And so there, of course, is a written storyline to, to create this, this image, this, this film. And so a, a part of it, of course, is, is scripted, right? Is somewhat of like a performance, right? But the intimate connection between performers and the actual pleasure and enjoyment of the scenes is authentic. Whether it is, you know, a very kinky scene or not, everything is, is planned out. So there is somewhat of a performance to, to ethical porn, uh, depending on the ethical porn that you're viewing, of course. But we are used to adult movies uh, that are made by men, right? Mm-hmm. So usually when I say like the word male gaze, what I'm saying is like super up close shots of genitals, um, you know, storylines that are just <laughs> completely unrealistic sometimes, right? Like, oh, my mother-in-law is in the next room and then she walks in and joins us. Like, you know, and it just like... Things that where the man's presence is always only represented by his like huge penis. And then the woman is kind of this objectified person in in this shot. And, you know, it's usually like the penis and then like the female body and like fake orgasms and all this like really unrealistic scenes that just paint a picture of sex that we probably won't experience in real life, right? And that we should not experience in real life. And so what it does is it kind of like takes like the the other performers out of the experience, right? Usually the one who is giving, not the receiver. And so it it's not fair that it doesn't like paint that full picture. So I think that is something that is important to to think about when you think about the performance and the fiction behind pornography. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, something that also came to mind as you were explaining that as well was really that when you are looking at kind of like quintessential heteronormative male-gazed pornography, the concept and the idea of pleasure is really left out of the equation, especially for the female role. And it can be so harmful for people who are just trying to understand the intricacies of how sex works, what how pleasure works. You know, I'm thinking of you and I back in our formative years, like trying to figure out what exactly this sex thing is by being and looking online. And it does such a disservice to the actual representation of sex, how 
bodies can connect in so many different ways than just this one specific way that we're shown. So I'm kind of curious if I'm somebody who maybe is a parent or um, wants to just kind of start to talk to kids about sex and porn, where do we begin with all this? And kind of like, what is the parent's role in all of this? Right. So the parent's role in, in this is is huge, right? Because if you think about it, where our teens or kids first, you know, accidentally stumbling across porn, it could be on the family computer or it could be on their mobile phone, whether or not they're seeking it out or not. Mm. Um, that's obviously not the most important part of the conversations we need to be having. So I always say like top tips to, for parents is, you know, have the talk and, and not just make it a talk. The talk is what we like know it as, right? It, is it has to be an ongoing conversation throughout your child's life, right? Um, also, don't make assumptions about your child or your teen. So that being like their sexuality or their gender, right? Not assuming that they're cishet, for example. Um, and being able to kind of like open these conversations of saying like, you know, you may come across some, you know, pornography one day. Uh, what do you know about porn? Or I, these are the things that I want you to know about what you might see. So it's basically the role is to arm young people with the tools to make smart and healthy decisions in life, right? Because we want them to make good choices and and not only you know what we consider good choices based on our values but also to when it comes to their their sexual health and their relationships we want them to have pleasurable sexual relationships of course because that's all about being healthy and having fun and what more does a parent want for their child as they're you know, soon becoming adults. I love that you bring that up because kind of like tying it back to that performance piece, just kind of being able to fill a kid, a teenager in on the fact that like, hey, like this is really what the porn landscape is looking like right now. And like, you know, this isn't a complete representation of what sexual expression looks like. So so creating awareness around it, because when there's no conversation, then that seems like it's the only way, the only answer, the quote unquote right thing to do. And I feel like that's where we go wrong. Exactly. Exactly. And there's no right or wrong way to go about figuring out your identity or your sexuality, right? It's like, you're just trying to learn, you know, like you were saying earlier, like I was curious. So I Googled, you know, I wanted to know what sex looked like. And so that's where, what most kids are going to do because they're not getting the conversation at home or at school. So if we're able to give, have those conversations with them, then they're least likely to be Googling alone on their phone and coming across these, you know, crazy porn scenes that they assume is what a healthy sexual relationship looks like, you know, and what are the themes that they're picking up from this? You know, the messages they're receiving are, you know, the fetishization of BIPOC, uh, misogyny, violence, um, the sexualization of teens, Mm. unconsensual sex, unsafe sex practices. So being able to come in and, and have these conversations with them 
like you said, it's going to steer them in the right direction and understanding like, hey, this is a misrepresentation of what porn is. This is here to make as much money as possible. So this isn't real. Your body isn't supposed to, you know, always look this way. Sex isn't always supposed to be this way. Um, But also, you know, being mindful that we don't want to... um, create an atmosphere that makes them feel like ashamed or embarrassed or that sex is something that they can't come and talk to you about again in the future. Mm. Tell me how you would set that up, you know, to, to create a space that feels, that feels safe and approachable and shame-free in, in a parent and kind of child dynamic, or maybe, maybe like a teenager and like mentor dynamic. I think what's important is, is just to, to start these conversations young and also don't be afraid if you you haven't yet it's never too late or too soon to have these conversations i think that also acknowledging you know that it's funny or embarrassing or or kind of hard for you kind of like you know helps smooth out the moment if you're feeling embarrassed but also like to kind of keep that ease of like this is a normal conversation because we don't want our teens or kids to pick up on the feeling that like this is really uncomfortable or this is really embarrassing because then that kind of relates back to themselves or their bodies or sex and so they we don't want them to shut down um some tips that i think that is is helpful is to have these conversations where it doesn't feel like it's a talk right like Mm. you sit them down their bed um and you have this conversation with them and it's like horrible and awful and it's never going to happen again um it can be done in uh, driving your child to soccer practice or folding the laundry or taking a walk in the park right it's just it's supposed to be brought up in a casual way I love to hear that. I think that's really, really wonderful advice, especially for people who are in positions where they kind of are guiding younger individuals and and kind of serving as as really good mentors through this sort of stuff. So I know that you are a part of an organization called The Porn Conversation, and this um, I'm really curious to just hear a little bit more about the mission behind this movement and just your involvement within it. Yeah, I love this. So, so this is um, a nonprofit project that I'm organizing. It was created by Erica Lust and her husband, Pablo Dobner. And they are parents. Not only is Erica um, a, an ethical porn producer and, and director, she, she uh, is a concerned parent as well, right? Because she sees that that, you know, online free porn tube sites are just kind of dominating uh, the culture of around sex and sexuality, not only for the generation today, but also previous generations. So we need to kind of like step in and and create kind of this culture of, of having these conversations. So the porn conversation is um, an online uh hub for free and easily accessible tools for parents, guardians, and educators in order to lead these conversations to talk about porn and also for a comprehensive sex education curricula and activity guides. Um, We are currently revamping it, so it's going to be 
coming out with like all new stuff um hopefully by this summer early summer or late spring and it's it's amazing. I think that it's a great initiative that they started and I'm managing it. So it's been really exciting kind of, um, being able to put something together that I wish I had when I was a teenager. Right. So everything is very age appropriate. Every guide for parents, every curricula for teachers, it's all split up to, to teach different age groups. And it's kind of, finally bringing not only pleasure back into sex education, but also it's introducing porn into sex education, right? Because porn is an incredible place to start for having these conversations because you can literally pick up so many themes within online free porn today that we need to discuss in comprehensive sex ed. That is such a vital point. And, you know, it touches on a lot of the topics that we've talked about today, which is about, you know, power structures, consent, minors, like just the realities of sex trafficking, pleasure. There's so much there. Race. I mean, it's endless. I mean, you could really create a whole curriculum just based off of that and like kind of use that as that that centerpiece to kind of keep referring back to. So I love that you guys are doing this work and I think it's so necessary and I couldn't agree more with you. Like this is a resource I would have loved to have at a time when I was just navigating all of this for the first time. Now, I know that we've kind of covered a lot of the harsher realities, if you will, and stigmas of porn, but I'd really love to get into really how porn can be used as like a wonderful tool to improve our sex lives. I'd really kind of like to look at the other side of it and get your insight there. Oh, for sure. So, you know, I am I am pro porn. I am not a porn shamer. So so this is this is great. And some people might be wondering, like, well, how on one hand are we talking about the porn conversation, all the bad things that come from it? Um, and then tying it to like, what are the positives we can find in it? Well, it's it's it all comes down to the type of porn that you're consuming, right? And and so what turns you on? What makes you feel good? Um, what kind of things do you want to bring into your relationships? So more than anything, it's like kind of um, just keeping that like scope of like being more literate when it comes to porn, right? Mm. So. When it comes to to using porn to um, improve our sex lives, um, I like to see porn as more than just an outlet for finding that visual stimuli to enhance a masturbation session, right? Um, but it is a tool that can be used for exploration. Um, when we watch porn, we can ask ourselves, you know, what is it that turns me on in this particular film? Is it the power play? Um, is it... Is it a kink that I might want to try? Um, and it's a way to to try out these sexual desires before even acting them out in real life, either alone or with partners. So the hard part here usually comes with the communication for people, right? They watch the porn, they see something that they like in it, they get really turned on by it, they take note, right? And then they think, huh how can I tell my partner about this, right? When it's something that's usually done behind closed doors. Mm. So <laughs> once you find that thing or things or 
you know, films or anything that has kind of like driven you towards the desire, you can open up the floor and ask questions to your partner, communicate with them, right? Say, hey, are you curious to try different forms of penetration? Um, What do you think about sex toys? Would you consider having sex somewhere else other than the bedroom? And also to be able to ask them what their desires are as well. So saying, you know, do you have any sexual fantasies? Would you like to tell me about them? Um, It can be a tool for communication, not only about, you know, sex education, but when it comes to our relationships about desire, about fantasy, about intimacy, about playfulness. Um, So again, it's just another tool for, for great communication and some really fun exploration. And I'm I'm curious to kind of backtrack here. You mentioned and you've kind of threaded through the conversation this concept of porn literacy. So I'd kind of love for you to explain what that actually is for those listening who are like, what does that mean? What exactly does it mean to be porn literate? Right. Okay. So porn literate is, or porn literacy is all about asking questions to help you understand the porn that you use and and how you use it. So what this does is it helps us figure out what we want to get from porn, what kind of porn we'd like to support, and how we'd like porn to impact us when we're away from it. So what it does is it helps us become more mindful, more intentional Mm. about how we engage with porn. So how do I feel about porn uh, before I open the screen? during, after, how did it make me feel? What did it make me think about? Right. So actively engaging and being intentional with the porn that you are consuming. I really love those questions and tying it kind of back to the way that we can really integrate it. And as a tool to improve our sex lives, I think it's a really wonderful point that you bring up that it's a huge way that we can learn to communicate with our partners, um, just explore what we want. So I'm curious, like, what are your ethical porn resources or recommendations for anybody listening who's like, I'm wanting to get more literate around my pornography and I would love to know where to start. What are your thoughts here? Wow. So I always say, you know, do your homework to each and every person, right? Because my recommendation um, is my recommendation, right? And I'm a bit biased, of course, but I really do enjoy Erica S. films. I think that she has a collection out called Ex-Confessions, which is really interesting to me because it was crowdsourced um, asking the public, you know, what are your fantasies? And they write in to Erica about their fantasies and, and what they've been desiring out of their sex life. And, and she creates them into these like beautiful films. Right. And so it, I find her films to be very dynamic and also you can find just about anything on there from like, you know, um, anything from like BDSM, uh, kind of playing in the kink world to, you know, um, different, alternative relationship dynamics. And so I really enjoy that. But of course, I always tell people, you know, do your homework, search around, look at some previews if you can, or trailers, uh, sign up for a free film every once in a while and and see kind of um, what entices you about uh, 
this site in particular and and how would you like to to use this in your life in your sex life and yeah it's it's really it's up to it's up to everyone i think um but i think being mindful of what you're consuming is really important just as we are with you know, our, our clothing or our shampoos, right? We kind of see like, hmm, where's this sourced from? And so it's kind of wise to do the same thing with our porn. You know, it's, it's really a unique experience and a really great way to kind of figure out what your own value system is and the way that you care to explore. So I think it's like a really unique exploration and so I'm kind of curious to ask you if you have any sort of sexual wellness routines that kind of you keep in practice to live a healthy sex life and just feel like you're in your authenticity yeah definitely so number one top you know sexual wellness routine for me is always keeping my sexual health in check. You know, that includes visiting the gynecologist regularly. Um, also, you know, with that comes finding the right sexual healthcare professional for me. Right. So just as you would with therapy, just as you would with dating, I think it's really nice to shop around if you can, if you don't feel a kind of connection with your, with your gynecologist or whoever you're going to go get a CI tested. Um, it's good to like feel that, that good connection, that good vibe. Right. Um, which took a little bit of time for me, honestly, after I first left, the states um because i was like you know 100 planned parenthood girl and so having to <laughs> figure that out all over again was like okay i'm gonna be really mindful about this um also regularly cleaning my sex toys um making sure to make some time for intimate moments with myself that make me feel good and also keeping positive sexual communication open in my own relationship. So I check in with my partner regularly, you know, emotionally, um, to see, you know, how they're doing and, and making sure that we're, you know, taking the time to still date each other despite, you know, not being able to do too much, uh, because of the pandemic and keep things exciting. Uh, and yeah, I would say all of those come, come to mind. What is one thing that you feel like if anybody is listening that they should 100% take away from our conversation today? If you are a porn lover, if you absolutely detest porn or if you're somewhere in between those two, right? I ask that people see porn as a tool for opening communication, right? With yourself, with your partner, with your child, with your teen, with your students. Um, It's been a part of our culture and has had an effect on our relationship with sex and sexuality for way too long to ignore it. So open up these conversations and, and let's talk about it. Avril, this was such an insightful conversation, and I just want to thank you so much for your time here and just your knowledge on the subject. I think that this is really going to give people a lot of things to think about and to explore within themselves. So please tell us where we can connect with you, how we can find you, and just follow your work and what you're up to. 
Yeah, sure. So you can find me at Sexology Girl on Instagram, and there you can see my website. Um, you're welcome to to message me anything. You know, I I'm always open for communication and to learn more. So so please. Amazing. Well, this was a great conversation and I just want to thank you so much for coming on the Bedside Podcast. Thank you, Tatiana. It was really fun. It was really fun. Thank you so much for sharing this space with me. Yes, of course. Thank you for listening to the Bedside Podcast. If you liked this episode and want to follow along with similar stories and interviews, be sure to check out our Instagram at the Bedside and thebedside.co online. Make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and of course, share with your friends. It's the best way you can support us and our good sex mission. Thank you for listening.